Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Bridget Tunnicliffe. In the programme this week, our Olympians win big at the Halberg Awards. An all-black is cleared of taking a banned substance, but what about the collateral damage? We look back at the impact former South African rugby captain Eust van der Vesthazen had on the sport. One of the most influential figures in New Zealand football dies. Lydia Coe introduces a raft of changes to her game ahead of the 2017 LPGA season. US-based New Zealand golfer Grant Waite talks about returning to the game at the age of 50. And the bookies' favourite gears up for the World Sharing and Wool Handling Championships in Invercargill. After winning a record 18 medals at the Rio Olympics, New Zealand's top athletes were once again celebrated at the Halberg Sports Awards in Auckland this week. Olympic canoe Lisa Carrington claimed New Zealand's top sporting honour, the Supreme Halberg Award for 2016. Carrington won the title after claiming the Sportswoman of the Year Award for the first time. Matt Chatterton with this report. After missing out on the title for the last five consecutive years, Lisa Carrington finally has her hands on the silverware at the Halbergs. Carrington beat her closest rivals for the Sportswoman of the Year title, Dame Valerie Adams and Lydia Coe, after she won a gold and bronze in the women's canoe sprints at the Rio Olympics. In doing so, she became the first New Zealand female athlete to win two medals at an Olympics. The 27-year-old then added the Supreme Award to the Sportswoman title, rounding off what was Carrington's most successful year in professional sport. Carrington says it's a relief to finally win just one Halberg. I mean, looking at the trophy and the names on the trophy is amazing, and um, it's great to be a part of that history, and um, it just makes the trophy, you know, um, the prestige just way more, so it's cool. Winner of the Sportsman of the Year was Roa Mahe Drysdale, who won gold in the men's single scales at Rio by just centimetres. Drysdale beat boxing champion Joseph Parker, Olympic middle distance bronze medalist Nick Willis, and shot put bronze medalist at Rio Tom Walsh. It's Drysdale's fifth Sportsman of the Year award. He says he cherishes this one as much as his first. If you look at, at you know what you had to do then to win the Supreme Award, it was it was win a world title. Even second place could win you the Supreme Award. And now uh, you know there's there's a lot of world champions that don't even get up on the stage to win their category. So you know I think that can be attributed a lot to the the funding from High Performance Sport, and you know it just makes it more of an honour. The Team of the Year award went to 49er sailing pair Blair Chook and Peter Burling, who won gold at the Rio Olympics, adding to their silver at the London Games in 2012. Team of the Year was the tightest of the categories last night. Chook and Burling beat Olympic gold medal rowers Hamish Bond and Eric Murray for the title. Bond and Murray have been unbeaten in 69 races and have won the Supreme Halberg Award twice. Chuk and Burling were also unbeaten for the past four years, proving just how tough the contest was. Burling says the win did come as a surprise. Well, we were listening to their uh, accolades get read out and you know, it sounded 
pretty impressive what they've managed to achieve. But you know, like we haven't been beaten in the 49er for the last four-year period. So, and for us, we couldn't have done anything more in 2016. And you know, the thing we're incredibly proud of is that you know we performed our our best ever yacht race um, in Rio, and uh, you know that's something we always look back on and we always have. New Zealand blade runner Liam Malone won the disabled sportsperson in his first year in the category. Malone won two gold and one silver at the Rio Paralympics in 2016. The colourful 23-year-old says this is just the beginning for him. You know, there's a lot of things that I really want to do. Obviously, the next most important thing for me to do that I'm prioritising is becoming the fastest person on the planet. So that's to run 400 metres in under 43 seconds, and that's really, really possible. Last year, I dropped four seconds. It's only another three seconds to do that. Topping off the night for Carrington, her mentor Gordon Walker won Coach of the Year. Typically the Halberg Awards are rugby dominated, but not this year. The Chief Executive of Sport New Zealand, Peter Miskimmon, says with 18 of the Rio Olympic medals coming from nine disciplines, there is a depth and breadth in sport that this country has never had before. He spoke to Morning Report, Susie Ferguson. I think it was a reflection of the fabulous year we had last year with the Olympic and Paralympic Games in uh, Rio, which was something quite special for New Zealand. And I think we saw all of the the wonderful athletes on parade last night. And uh, I think genuinely everyone was very pleased for for Lisa to finally get up on the stage and and, uh, receive the trophy. So it was a wonderful night. It's been a long time coming for Lisa Carrington, hasn't it? Why do you think this was her year? Well, I think, you know, a double medalist, the first woman ever to, to be a double medalist, um, gold medal and a bronze, was pretty significant. Um, and look, you know, she was up against a huge stiff competition. Um, I mean, any one of the four or five or six or seven of the athletes uh, last year could have won it. I mean, if you'd gone back 10 years ago, it was probably a one or two horse race. Uh, now the quality of our athletes and the amount of athletes that are winning means that the, it's a really hard um, job for the judges. Um, but look, overall, it was just a big celebration of uh, what it means to be a New Zealander. I think they are wonderful people and um, they represent us uh, with absolute pride. And um, I think New Zealand can be particularly proud of all of them. A lot of the big winners, too, also the winners in that funding review a few months back. What does this tell us about exactly the priorities, I guess, that are being set in sport? Yes, well, I mean, we, we, we are particularly pleased with the results at Rio. I mean, it was the, the, the best ever Olympic Games with 18 medals. Uh, and the Paralympics, it was the second day uh, Paralympics in a row where we've topped the medals uh, per capita table. Um, the, the significant thing about the Olympic Games was the 18 medals came from nine sports. So we're getting depth and breadth that we've never had before. And, and all of a sudden, um, now the, the investment that we've done you know, over a number of years is starting to, to, to bear fruit. So the likes of rowing, which has always been a really strong um, uh, contributor to our results, now we're getting them from sailing, from canoe racing. Um, there's a, a number of others that are, that are stepping up, um, uh, cycling New Zealand. So we are seeing a, a lot more depth and breadth of um, success which really harms us to think that you know, this means we do have a world-leading sports system here in New Zealand from sort of grassroots all the way through to high performance. So looking back then at the Rio Olympics and looking forward to the Commonwealth Games next year, the preparations here, are these specifically being targeted in some of these sports where you're talking about this breadth and depth? Yes, look, the challenge is that, um, that we are getting better and we've got more athletes that are, um, uh, are likely to succeed and that puts pressure on the funding that we have. And we're obviously up against countries that are far more resourced and have far more population-based uh, to drive from. 
And equally, you know, a lot of our cost goes in international travel, getting our athletes overseas. So we have to be very careful about how we distribute that money. So a lot of time and care is taken to, to look at where we can target that money to get the greatest response. Um, and, and you're right, the Commonwealth Games now is literally April next year. So that's on the minds of athletes and, and all the sports so the funding that we announced at Christmas time was really all the way through to the Tokyo Olympic Games. So it's giving a sense of those sports that we're targeting now for those outcomes across that four-year period. Is it too early to be asking the question of how many medals you think New Zealand's going to come away with from those Commonwealth Games? Well, it's always difficult at a Commonwealth Games because um, it, it, it's, you're really unsure which athletes will turn up because it's in competition with many other world championships. Olympic Games, you know everyone's going to be there. So predicting or, or assessing what our outcomes will be uh, are a little bit easier. But the Commonwealth Games will be a little bit more challenging. The other thing, what it does is allows a lot more younger um, emerging athletes um, uh, to, to um, have the experience of the Games. And typically at the Commonwealth Games, we get a number of new names that we we hadn't seen before on the, on the public stage. So that, that's what the fascination is about the Commonwealth Games. So there's a, still an air of excitement. You know, we are living in a really good period for sport in New Zealand, be it Olympic, Paralympic and non-Olympic. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to look forward to over the next four years. That's the Chief Executive of Sport New Zealand, Peter Miskimen. You're listening to Extra Time. I'm Bridget Tunnicliffe. The all-black and blues lock Patrick Tuipoloto says he is relieved to have been cleared of taking a banned substance. Tuipoloto was stood down from training after a preliminary positive test for a banned substance last year, but was cleared this week when a second B sample tested negative. He says he was shocked when he got the initial test result, but he's back training with the blues squad and is pleased the ordeal is over. Quite happy with, with the outcome, quite relieved. It's been quite stressful for myself, my partner and my family. Really just looking forward to getting out, getting out on that paddock again and training with the Blues and playing. Patrick Toy Piloto. The Rugby Players Association says innocent players being labelled drug cheats is a price that must be paid in the fight against performance-enhancing drugs. The chief executive of the New Zealand Rugby Players Association, Rob Nicholl, says they want to know why there was a discrepancy between the two samples. RNZ Sports editor Stephen Houston asked Nicholl if the case had shaken his faith in the testing process. I'm not even going to go there yet at the moment. We've just been so focused on um, on trying, I guess, to get to a, to the point that we got to today um, for Patrick and for his family and his partner and and frankly, um, you know, his teammates in All Blacks and New Zealand rugby because you know the way in which it came out in the media on the weekend. I think most New Zealanders read the media and understood it was pretty complex and it's not straightforward and we should wait and see what happens. But you know, media over overseas, as you know, they just jump on it and um, Patrick was labelled. The All Blacks were labelled, and um, you know that's a lot of responsibility to sit on the shoulders of a 22-year-old who's sitting there in complete shock, with no idea how this has come to be, realising that potentially um, he may be responsible for that. And um, it's just such a relief that the, the process has concluded. He's not responsible for any of this. He's completely exonerated and cleared. So what toll has it taken on him? Um, it's been pretty stressful, uh, definitely. And I think, you know... In terms of long-term toll, I'm pretty impressed with the, the young man. I think his, his main worries have been more for his partner and his family and, like I said, teammates and and where this is going to put the All Blacks and New Zealand rugby in the future. You know, what what are the implications? And, and, and that, like I said, that's a lot of responsibility on a young guy. And um, 
but he, he's got you know he, he's got some very good people um, close to him his parents in particular they have a wonderful perspective on life they realize that sport is not everything and so there were some pretty honest conversations around let's just have a bit of faith and work through the process and you know we, we know you're honest Patrick we know that this is is not you cheating or anything let's work through the process and work hard and, and just trust and have a bit of faith that we'll get this right in the end as you touched on there though the wider perspective is that there have been or are groups or people that, that are looking to say that this we've already all known about the All Blacks and this only only confirms it. Yeah, and it's just an absolute load of rubbish. And um, and and that's you know at the end of the day that's the damage I guess that was done. And and maybe now people understand why the rules and regulations um, surrounding anti-doping processes do demand this confidentiality. It's very difficult though when you have a high-profile athlete associated with a high-profile team. You know he's provisionally suspended. You have to withdraw him from the environment. He's not allowed to stay within the team or team activities or training or anything and yet you've got to maintain complete confidentiality so how do you do that on the quiet um it's quite difficult and that was one of the challenges we were presented with and you know i know people have criticized us for saying he's returning home to address a person i don't know that you know there's there's a few obvious personal issues that you'd have to come home to address but this is this is right up there amongst them it was all on his shoulders you know when you when you return a positive test it is it is not oh, we're going to do some more work to see whether it's that. It's all on your shoulders. You've got to go away and do the work and prove that you're innocent and that, that or, or you've, got to, you've got to come back and say why this has happened. It's all on you. And so, yeah, it was, it was deeply personal for him in terms of coming back and addressing it and trying to get to the point that we got to today. I mean, you seem remarkably low-key in the sense, or you talk about frustrations, but, but in the sense and the impact that this could have had and when an A and a B sample so rarely offer different results that your faith in the system surely got to be shaken somewhat and or presumably the, the Utah laboratory. Yeah, maybe we've been through lots of scenarios similar to this and we recognise that you can't afford to go up and down with the emotions of it. And the advice we got from, from the team working on it was we have to be unbelievably methodical and tick every single box through this process. We can't jump ahead in case we miss something because that could be catastrophic. And that's why it takes time. And that's why you need to work in an ideally in a world of confidentiality so that you're not distracted the athletes aren't unfairly labelled, and then we end up in the situation that we're in. Uh, where New Zealanders will appreciate he's been exonerated, but people around the world probably won't even print a retraction. So, you know, are we shaking around the face of the system? I think if you support the fight against anti-doping and athletes of New Zealand, there's probably no greater body that does support that fight any stronger um, than, than New Zealanders. You know, we're a very honest country. We want clean sport. There's no doubt about that. And I think we all understand that when you do that, there's every now and again there's going to be, if you like, I suppose I hate to use the word, but a bit of collateral damage or there's going to be mistakes. But we do accept that if you're going to join this fight against anti-doping every now and again, an innocent athlete is going to cop it. You hate to say it, but in a way that's part of the cost of having to fight such a, such a thing. That's New Zealand Rugby Players Association head Rob Nicholl talking to Stephen Hewson. You're listening to Extra Time. I'm Bridget Honeycliffe. The former South African rugby captain Eust van Vesthazen has died this week, aged 45. The former Springbok scrum half had been living with motor neuron disease since 2011. Van der Vesthazen was part of the Springbok team that won the 1995 World Cup, with Nelson Mandela on hand to watch him lift the trophy just a year after the end of apartheid. Corne Krieger, who played with van der Vesthazen, says he hated to lose. He was the ultimate modern-day 
scrum off, you know, probably the first of the bigger scrum offs in the world. He was tall and lanky and very powerful. And, you know, he sort of changed the number nine position, you know, he, he, with his speed and then his agility, but also his size, you know, and he didn't stand back for anybody. And, and that showed him that 1995 World Cup final in South Africa where he was the only guy who managed to get John Lomo onto the ground, you know. So I think he became very famous for that, uh, but also for his attitude and his absolute will to win, and, and he hated losing. Clinton Vandenberg, a journalist with South African broadcaster Supersport, says it is not only a sad time for rugby in South Africa, but for rugby around the world. He says Jus van der Vest Hazen was a very special player. Morning reports Susie Ferguson asked him how he will be best remembered. I think he'll be remen- remembered more, more of a player who broke the mould for scum off play. You get those players who perhaps elevated beyond the others. I think of people like John Alobu, like Richie McCall, like Gareth Edwards, and you would would comfortably put Eust into that realm of just superstar players. I described him as a Galactico, and that's, he was very much that, that kind of player and, and raised the bar for scrum offs and, and set an absolutely new standard. And John Olomu actually visited him a couple of years back. Clearly this is something that's been coming for some time since that diagnosis. Yes, indeed. Uh, that film was made by the French journalist Benoit Principi, and there's a lovely scene where Jonah, who's ailing himself, and he goes and visits Eurus, who's in his wheelchair and, 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 and very emaciated. And it's the most touching scene. You know, these great competitors, guys are smashing into each other in the 95 final. And there you see these great warriors kind of limping, you know, uh, uh, Jonah coming into picture. And it's a, it's, it was a very poignant moment in that movie. That was South African sports broadcaster Clinton Vandenberg. He wasn't New Zealand's greatest footballer, but a man you'd probably pick first for your best all-time team. That's how many are describing the former All-Whites captain Steve Sumner, who died this week at the age of 61. Sumner was diagnosed with an aggressive form of prostate cancer in September 2015. Sports reporter Barry Guy looks back on the life of one of the most influential figures in New Zealand football. There is little doubt that Sumner is best remembered for leading the national side in the qualification four and playing in New Zealand's first World Cup finals. English-born Sumner was the All-Whites' most influential player at the 1982 tournament in Spain. He scored in their opening game against Scotland to become the first player from Oceania to score in a World Cup. Speaking last year, Sumner says he remembers that goal well. If I'd have missed it, it would have been a Mintizad, wouldn't it? That's what it, <laughs> that's what it would have been. But I can, I can still remember it quite vividly. I can remember Winton diving, running down the line with the ball and playing the ball in behind their back line. I managed to get a toe at it and poking underneath him. As I sort of fell across the top of him, the ball popped out the other side. And there it was, right in front of me. He played a record 105 games for New Zealand between 1976 and 1988, scoring 22 goals. New Zealand's goalkeeper at that tournament and later chairman of New Zealand football, Frank Van Hattam, says it was better playing with Sumner than against him. He was a winner. He was an absolute bastard to play against. You know, if you were on the opposition, he was a winner for the other side. He would do anything in his power, get in your head. He was a winner and he brought that to his team and he made it, made it work. When you're with him, man, he was a great guy to follow. He was with you the whole way. 
Kevin Fallon, who was assistant coach in 82, agrees that Sumner had the X factor. You'll never forget him because he's one of these people he had to single out. Somebody had to look after Sumner at set play, at corners, in general play. You couldn't ignore the boy. And that's the biggest accolade probably I could say. He was a warrior and certainly was always down in my notes in the diary. Sumner, question mark, what we're going to do with him. Sumner was awarded the FIFA Order of Merit at a ceremony prior to the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. Last year he received the New Zealand Order of Merit for his services to football. Sumner would regularly comment on the state of the game for us and was passionate about the game. Frank Van Haddam says he will go down as one of New Zealand's all-time best players. Was he a better player than Winton? Of course he wasn't. Was he the best player that's ever played for New Zealand? Probably he'd be right up there. People would say he was a complete player. He could you know, he'd get forward, he'd get back, you know, good leader. I think what's very, very clear, if you're picking an all-time New Zealand team, he's in there in the midfield and, uh, and probably be captain. And Sumner's name will go on. Last year, he had a stand named after him at English Park in Christchurch. You're listening to Extra Time. I'm Bridget Tunnicliffe. The New Zealand golfer and world number one Lydia Ko has introduced a raft of changes to her game ahead of the 2017 LPGA season. Ko has confirmed she has a new coach, caddy and new equipment all before her first tournament of the year. And as Matt Chatterton reports, more changes are on the way. Lydia Ko confirmed today she's now under the tutelage of South African swing guru Gary Gilchrist. It finalises the trio of changes she's made. Her new caddy is South African Gary Matthews, and she's switched from Callaway Golf Clubs to the new brand on the block, PXG. Gilchrist coaches world number two Arya Jutanagan from Thailand and world number four Shan Shan Feng of China. He was also the understudy of Ko's former coach David Ledbetter. Ko says she doesn't expect a conflict of interest to arise between her, Gilchrist and Drew Tunnigan, despite the competitive nature of professional golf. There's you know, a bunch of us that work with Gary and I think you know, they all trust, trust him and you know, enjoy working with him. So I don't think it's necessarily a rivalry thing, but you know, it almost gives me confidence that hey, you know, he's a great, you know, great coach and uh, you know, hopefully this will be good going forward. Following their public split, Co's former coach Ledbetter warned the 19-year-old that her parents have too much influence on her and she must take control. Co agrees her parents do have a big say, but only want what's best for her. However, she says she will be taking greater control in 2017. The process for me to grow as a person and as a player in that way, you know, if you know things don't go right, I'm still able to you know learn from that, and I think that's the best way because you know there's always going to be you know great people around you, but you know I think I can't always rely on them. Meanwhile, the International Golf Federation is considering moving the location of the 2020 Olympic golf course, as the current one is a men-only club. A vote was due to take place today among club members on whether it would allow females to join, but it's been postponed. Asked for her thoughts on the matter, Co was diplomatic. The world itself is changing, and I think you know the game itself is changing. So, now hopefully, um, they'll in in the future or you know within some time, there'll be no golf courses where they're restricted to you know just one sort of player, and it will be available for all. Co's first tournament of the season is at the Australian Open next week. In the meantime, she's spending some downtime here in New Zealand. That was Matt Chatterton. 
The US-based New Zealand golfer Grant Waite will return home to play the New Zealand PGA and Open Championships next month. For Waite, now playing with success on the US Champions Tour, it is a homecoming with the New Zealand PGA at his home course at the Manawatu Golf Club. He'll then head south for the Open in Queenstown. Waite initially played for 23 years from 1987, winning four times, including the 1992 New Zealand Open and once on the US PGA Tour in the 1993 Kemper Open. In 2010, he turned to coaching before returning to the game once he turned 50. When I stopped playing, I had a few players on the PGA Tour that called me and asked if I would help them with their games. And I said, sure. So I spent five years doing that. And then the last two years, I got back. I went to the qualifying school when I turned 50 on for the Champions Tour and made it through and played the last two years out there on the Champions Tour. The hunger was still there, obviously, or did coaching sort of refresh that? Well, you know, I think if you're a, a tournament player, you really don't ever lose that. You always want to play, but, you know, unfortunately, as we get older, sometimes you know, can't cannot perform at the level that you need to to be at that highest level and you know I was a bit frustrated with a few things that were going on in my game decided to to walk away but the the great thing about golf which is unusual for most sports to say the least is that uh, you have like a second go at it when you're 50 years old and that was a uh, enjoyed the last two years so it's been a great thing. And so what has it been like coming back and how is your game? Overall, my game's been pretty good. Like physically, I've been, I have had an injury in my uh, right shoulder to do with a torn rotator cuff, which I've been fighting that. But outside of that, it's been pretty good. When you get to 15, you're trying to play competitively. It's just how well your body can stand up for the most part. Uh, you know, golf can be very uh, hard on your body. And as golf is uh, age, as you can see with guys like Tiger and so forth, that you know, it's uh, it's a strenuous sport and have an injury or anything like that it makes it very difficult but fortunately for the most part I've been pretty good the game itself and all that is actually in good shape so I'm looking forward to coming down to New Zealand and playing the New Zealand PGA at my home golf course where I grew up and uh, with Craig Perks and Tim Wilkinson from the same place so it's a it'll be great to see everybody and get to compete there and then the New Zealand Open which is down in Queenstown which I'm looking forward to as well so you know I'm just excited to get back and play. So the the trip down to New Zealand uh, just fitted in, obviously, the schedule? That was really part of it, was the fact that New Zealand PGA was um, at the Manitou Golf Club, and so I wanted to get back there and play. But also, uh, you know, it's been six years since I've been home, so I really wanted to do that as well. And it just worked out that with the tournament being at the Manitou Golf Club and then New Zealand Open the following week, uh, which is a um, you know, such a good tournament, great venue down there that I really wanted to come back and play. And you know, I have to thank the New Zealand PGA and the New Zealand Open Championship for making that possible. So uh, I'm I'm excited to do it. And how is your sort of approach to the game now, uh, especially you know over 50 playing the champions? Is it just as competitive? Are you driven just as much, or has that changed? You know. I, the, the thing is, as a competitor, you never lose that competitive edge where you're always trying to, to get better, to, to address the parts of the game that you struggle with and you try to keep getting better. And then in the competitive environment, 
doesn't matter how old you are, you, you want to perform at your highest level and beat the other competitors. So that's still in there, and I think that's the driving force for me wanting to play. And the opportunity was there, so I, I wanted to do it. And so, like when I come down to New Zealand, you know, it'd be great to see everybody. But I'm going to try and perform at the highest level I can if I can try and win the tournament. And that's how I look at it, and I don't think any tournament golf would look at it any other way. Grant White talking to Barry Guy. Shearer Johnny Kirkpatrick is a bookie's favourite to win the main event at the World Shearing and Wool Handling Championships in Invercargill this weekend. The event has attracted 116 competitors from 32 different countries. It's almost sold out with 4,000 people expected on Saturday night. The Napier Shearer is aiming for a World Open Shearing individual title and a World Machine Shearing Teams title. Reporter Alexa Cook asked Johnny Kirkpatrick how he was feeling. Yeah, good actually. Um, it's just about making the cut every round we go in now. Like, like we've still got two more rounds to do before we hit semis. So yeah, feeling really good. Yeah, and how much preparation's gone into this moment and this event? Yeah, quite a bit actually. Like we've um, done a lot of training because of the selection for us was back in November. So our training has started earlier than normal. And like having the world's probably earlier than a lot of other countries, um, we've had to train right through. So yeah, a lot of preparation has gone in actually. What sort of challenges have you had to deal with this season? Uh, none really. Actually, I've had probably one of the best seasons I had for a long time. Um, just probably enjoying cheering. How does it feel for the TAB to be picking you as their favourite? Jeez, I don't know if that's... <laughs> I, they always do things like that, but, yeah, you just, it's all on the night. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what kind of people are you up against? Who do you think is going to be you know, up there at the top? I think um, Scotland, they'll be there. Um, Ivan Scott from Ireland, I'd say he'll be there as well. Yeah, so and, and I'd say my, my teammate, will, he'll make it as well. Yeah, so like, I hope I make it myself. That's the main <laughs> bit, but, yeah, yeah, it's just about making the full cuts. That's the show for this week. Remember, you can contact us at sport at radionz.co.nz and you can get the latest sports news anytime on our website. We'll be back next week with another edition of Extra Time. I'm Bridget Tunnicliffe. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.